You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast featuring the stories of amazing Black and Latina women in STEM. This season, in honor of Mother's Day, we are highlighting the powerful stories of Black and Latina mothers in STEM. Stay tuned each week for these roundtable conversations as we learn more about the inspirational and authentic experiences of Black and Latina moms not only making it happen for their families, but for the entire STEM ecosystem. Welcome to another episode of Technically 200. I am your your host, Matt Stevenson. And as always, we have the most illustrious guests. And, and today is no different. As a matter of fact, my goodness, I've been waiting for today for quite some time. I have none other than Jonelle Bailey and Nevette Bailey. That's right. They share the same last name. Two episodes ago, we had two Carmens. No relation. Today, relation. Jonelle Bailey, she is a surgical critical care and acute care surgery fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Go Quakers. And Nevette Bailey, she is a software engineer at Etsy. And also, this is her second time on the podcast. Welcome, ladies. Thanks. Why don't we focus on first on what this season is about, which is Black and Latina moms in STEM, and of which both of you are, right? So I'd love to hear about your kids. Tell us about your kids. And then the smiles ensue. See, there we go. All right. So tell us about your kids. Okay. Um, my kiddo is named Arlo Tyrannosaurus. Um, they are non-binary, age seven, pronouns are they, them. Um, they're like super smart and fortunately and unfortunately, basically a clone of myself at times, um, which is great because I like myself, but also I'm not the easiest to get along with. So, yeah. <laughs> so when Arlo was born, Nevette said that she knew he looked like her because he looked like me. He's like, a clone of our faces. Yeah. Is that like a puzzle or something? I saw I saw even like the 3D sonogram and I was like, the baby looks like, I didn't know if Arlo was a boy or a girl or not a boy or a girl, but I was like, the baby looks just like me. And people thought I was crazy for saying that because how can you tell that from a 3D sonogram? But here we go. I have Arlo a looks just like myself, us. Just like me, just like us. Um, so my son is 14 months old. His name's Antonio. Um, he is walking very well, climbing things. He can open doors. He says words, but not mama. And he loves to eat and is huge and he has really big feet. All right. Are yeah. you already making predictions about what his future is going to look like? No, I have no idea. No. He's going to be a big brother out. though. That's in the future. He's going to be, a, I'm sorry, well, what? A big brother. Are you pregnant? Yeah. Congratulations. Another Another boy, probably with big feet, is on the way. <laughs> That's awesome. So when, when's your due date? October 16th. Oh, that is fantastic. Our kids How? have the same birthday. I think it's important to like point that out. Oh, yeah. Antonio and Arlo have the same birthday. <laughs> Thanks for stealing my thunder. I was going to bring Sorry. that up. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should have mentioned it, and I didn't. So How, how planned was that? Not planned. They're like six years apart. I can't yeah, six years apart. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's just a weird twin thing that happened. <laughs> that wait, you said that happened or happens? Is this like a thing? No, I think happened to yeah. us. It happened to us, but yeah, 
how has it been being a pregnant healthcare professional during all of this? Uh, yeah, so Antonio was actually born a week before New Jersey went on lockdown. So when we went to the hospital, all we got like the screening questions, I guess, because they were asking at that time, like, does anyone have any fevers or cold symptoms or anything like that? But there were no visiting restrictions in the hospital. They asked if you traveled to China recently. Right. Did you travel out of the country? Those were the kind of kind of questions. And we were, of course, like, I'm nine months pregnant. No. Um, (laughs) And then when I came home from the hospital, it was a Saturday and the whole, you know, my uh, uh, my boyfriend's whole family was over all the cousins, aunts and uncles, everybody wanted to meet this baby. And then a week later, no one was there. So it was not what we expected in terms of like having help with a newborn because no one was allowed to come near us basically after the lockdown and the pandemic really got into full swing. I was supposed to go back to work after six weeks, which is pretty standard. I was a chief resident. Um, I was supposed to sit for boards in July and this was March. And so the board's rules are that you have to work a certain number of weeks in the last year of your residency in order to sit for boards. So that limits the amount of time that you can take for any kind of leave, but for maternity leave as well. So with the pandemic in full swing, the boards actually changed the rules and added two weeks to the possible time that you could miss. Yeah. But the two weeks was for quarantining when you got exposed to COVID. So I had to figure out whether I was going to take the risk and have to extend residency if I did get exposed to COVID and take the two weeks up front, which is, I ended up doing that. So I had maternity leave for eight weeks and then I didn't have to quarantine, thankfully, and graduated on time. So having a newborn during a pandemic is incredibly stressful. Um, I feel like, you know, now it's like a, a year or so later and we know so much more about the virus and the transmission and the exposures and there's like evidence and everything but at that time nobody really knew anything we were worried about it the virus being spread even with proper ppe which there was a shortage of and even with proper um precautions which was tough to know what there was to do we didn't know if it was on surfaces if it was just in the air like it was there was a whole lot of unknowns so every day i went to work super stressed out i worried i was pumping so i worried about you know, every, like every surface that everything touched, I cleaned everything in in the office that I was pumping in. As soon as I got to work, I tried to minimize the amount, like I even had like a way that I turned my scrub shirt inside out so that I could only have one side touching the pump stuff and have not worried about the outside of it touching anything. And, um, and then when I came home, I would go through the basement and take all my, all my clothes, like I changed at the hospital, took those clothes off in the basement before I came up. And then I would shower immediately before I touched anyone in the house and it was a lot it was like it added like an extra probably a couple hours to my day that was already incredibly long and it was stressful because I was worried about bringing home any germs from the hospital but then obviously bringing home COVID and people didn't know how it would affect a brand new baby didn't know how it would affect you know his dad so it was terrible thankfully he uh made it through pretty healthy until six months maybe eight months. I forgot when he first got sick with like, not COVID, but a regular virus, but he's healthy and fine. And now being pregnant during COVID a year later, um, PPE is plentiful and we have a better understanding of the transmission modes. So, and it's routine, right? So like going back to the hospital after maternity leave, it was like going to the twilight zone. 
It didn't look anything like the hospital that I had left. Everyone, you know, the, like they changed the way that you could enter the hospital. They changed, they had temperature screening, like, you know, everybody was in full PPE all the time. There was only certain areas that you could go where you were away from everyone else, where you could take your PPE off, your mask off, your eye protection off. You had to go get things. Um, there used to be like boxes outside of rooms with potential con- with potential droplet exposures or potential airborne exposures where you could just grab a mask and grab some gloves and a, and a gown. And now you had to go to a place, depending on what department you worked for. As soon as you went into the hospital, you went to the place, you got assigned your mask and your eye protection for the day. You had to like sign it out. Um, they were recycling masks and like cleaning them. It was crazy. It was hard to believe that just like a few months before that was completely different in the hospital. Um, now that we have enough of everything. Um, we, I mean, I work at the periphery of the hospital. So um, being like in the ICU and being covering trauma and covering the trauma bay, we assume everyone has COVID until we get a negative test. And that can take hours to sometimes a day, depending on how long the test takes. So it's routine to take care of COVID patients and people are positive. You know, I would say like, maybe for anywhere from like 10% to a quarter of patients that come in now are positive. So we just 10% to a quarter are positive. Yeah. There's still, yeah, there's people in the community that are asymptomatic. I mean, you know, our trauma population in Philadelphia is um, mixed young men, mostly a man of color and then older people, car crashes and falls and things like that. Typical trauma population. So um, there's definitely still, COVID positive patients coming in every day. And we just usually, if they're, I mean, depending on how injured they are, how sick they are, they sometimes have to go to the operating room before their test is back. So we just treat them as if they have COVID. And then sometimes we find out they don't, sometimes we find out they do. Man, I mean, I feel like I saw a picture of, so your mom did get to meet Antonio, how long ago? Um, she met him before I went back to work because that was a very, really tough decision to make because, um, I knew that going back to work, I would potentially be exposed to COVID. And so we didn't want to have her potentially be exposed. And at that time, like where I worked, I wasn't getting tested regularly and there weren't tests available really for the community. Um, so we took Antonio there. So he was little, I mean, he was like, probably almost two months old. Uh, and we just decided that that was going to be the last time that we would get to see her until things got figured out because um, we didn't want her to get exposed to COVID. And like, even if I wasn't sick to, you know, to have her be exposed because I didn't know. Yeah. And so, so that's great that she got to, to me. I know that a lot of families, it feels like I'm hearing that folks are starting to make it back out, but it's all like, we haven't seen family in years. How, how about Arlo? Um, has uh, has mom been able to see Arlo anytime soon? Yeah, there was a time where we where Arlo Arlo spends half the time with their dad. So there was a time where Arlo was with me for like eleven days, and so on the tenth day, I felt like we quarantined for ten days. We could go visit her, and we stayed overnight. I think I don't remember. This was like in the summer. Um, and then otherwise, we occasionally will drive up in the car and sit outside of her apartment and she makes us grilled cheese sandwiches and we eat them in the car and she stands outside the car and we can like talk a little bit through the window. When we first started doing this, the risk was to my mom. Um, but now my mom's vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. 
and Arlo is not vaccinated and Arlo has asthma. So now we're still doing the same thing, but now like the attention is to keep Arlo safe. Um, so we're, we're kind of, Pfizer's predicting that the vaccine will be approved for your young kids in September, October. So we're just trying to hold down until then. What I'd like to know from you both is talk to me about what you believe has translated or carried through from how your mother raised you to how you're raising your own kids. Being a mom is like still pretty new to me. And also because my kid just starts, he just started really like doing stuff recently. Um, I would say like, I'm definitely keeping an open mind about what his interests will be and trying to communicate with him on his terms and letting him be however he is. So he's a pretty easygoing kid. He's honestly like a very easy to take care of toddler as far as toddlers go. Um, but definitely trying to like get on his level and figure out what he's trying to communicate. I think that's important, but I also think that that's like instilled by our mom. I think, I think some of the same stuff, like I definitely am just accepting of Arlo being Arlo. So like, I never, I, I thought Arlo was a boy. And then when Arlo was in kindergarten, they were like, I'm not a boy or a girl. I'm a them. I'm a they. <laughs> I'm a they. Cool. Um, and then recently in first grade, um, their school taught them what trans means. So trans is when doctors think you're a certain gender when you're born, but then you realize that you're not that gender. And so then Arlo was like, oh, I'm trans. And I was like, okay. I was actually confused because I did not know that definition of trans. And I was like, okay, I'm not, okay. And it took me like a little bit of time to figure out what they meant. Um, so I, I think for sure, just being accepting of Arlo in like whatever identity they have, um, or like whoever they want to be, I hope that they will want, they will continue to want to be a good person. Um, and then definitely like supporting interests is important too. And my mom obviously did that. You know, Jonelle, before, uh, being a surgery fellow, you were, uh, you were a resident for several years, right? Several is an understatement. Yes. <laughs> Was it seven? Was it? Like it was six, seven. Seven. You were resident for seven years. I mean, I think for for anyone who's listening, I always try to think of this in terms of there is a young girl listening who wants to be you. So, what is a resident, and like, why is that a big deal? Um, a resident is somebody that has finished medical school. So, after college, you get your bachelor's degree, and then if you decide you want to go to medical school. You um, go for four more years to graduate school, to medical school, and then you get an MD or a DO after your name. And all that means is that you're a doctor. It doesn't mean that you actually know how to take care of people. It means that you learned a lot of science. And so to learn how to be a doctor, you go to residency. And there's all kinds of residencies and all kinds of specialties, family medicine, surgery, urology, um, emergency medicine, anesthesia, like all kinds of stuff, whatever kind of doctor you want to be. And residency can be three years or seven is really the max. And it depends on what specialty you want to do and what path you're taking. Um, and then when you're a resident, your first year is your intern year. And that's when you are responsible for very little. You're very supervised. That's your first year being a doctor in the hospital. Um, 
And as you progress through the years, you get more responsibility. And then when you're almost finished with your residency, that's when you get the most autonomy and you get to sort of practice what it's like to be a doctor without supervision. When you finish your residency, you sit, you can sit for your specialty boards. So whatever specialty you went for, you went through residency for, those are the boards that you can take. And if you want to do subspecialty training, then you go to fellowship. So that's what I'm in now. So I finished general surgery residency. I took half of my general surgery boards and the other half is in like three weeks, fun times. And I'm in trauma surgery, surgical critical care and acute care surgery fellowship. It sounds like three things, but it's really like one big thing. And there's only one boards for the, for this specialty that I'll take next fall. And then my fellowship is two years and then I'll be done. Finally, after and, nine years. And then, and then what happens after that? I just get a job as a trauma surgeon somewhere. <laughs> preference for Philly? Uh, no preference. Wherever there's jobs, we'll see. But there's got to be jobs everywhere, right? That's You'd my- think, but the pandemic sort of put a big damper on hiring. So we'll see. Even, even for healthcare professionals? Yeah. So uh, basically anything that was like an option, a lot of budgets shifted because all the elective like elective procedures and elective things that hospitals do for money were canceled for a year. So uh, any jobs that were open, that sort of, they were like expanding, those are gone. And then now they're mostly replacing people that leave. So the job market is not awesome, but we'll see what it's like. I don't have to start trying to find a job until like the fall winter. We'll see. Nice. Well, so, so that's, Oh, and then before that you were a paramedic for many years. Yeah, before I went to medical. So I graduated from college with a civil engineering degree. And then I worked as a designer. What is that? that, um, It's like, uh, it's like the math sides of buildings and roads. Like the infrastructure of cities. So it can be like utilities, like you're building like big sewer pipes and water pipes and stuff like that. Or it can be land development where you like move around dirt to make places for buildings to get built. It can be structural engineering where you help design what steel beams are needed for a building that an architect designs um, or concrete, what kind of concrete you need and what sort of stuff goes into like pouring concrete. Um, I was designing parking lots for a time, which was interesting but I realized that I wanted to do something outside of an office. Although oddly I'm in an office currently. So yeah, so I became a paramedic and then worked um, for a few years and then decided I wanted to do something else in healthcare. Applied to medical school, it worked out. And then Nivette, all you did was you just, you danced and um, you got a couple degrees and, and now you code, right? Yeah. Yeah, just a PhD, NBD. I left, uh, I left. High school early uh, and danced for like around 10 years. And then I decided that I would need a bachelor's degree so that I could buy a house one day, LOL. So I went started going to college. Um, I just decided to major in chemistry because it was fine. Um, It was like math heavy and I liked math. And then I ended up transferring to the number four ranked school in the country for chemistry and finished a bachelor's and a master's of science there. And someone was like, you should go to grad school. And I was like, okay. So I applied to like um, 11 grad schools and I was accepted. 
So I did a PhD at Columbia. Mine took eight years. Yes. Normally it's five, but I had a baby and a divorce in mine and also changed my research after two years. So mine took eight years and I finished um, in 2019. And I wanted to be happy and have a good work-life balance. So I um, had met some people that worked in tech who seemed happy and to have good work-life balances. And I decided to go to a coding bootcamp. Um, so I did that. And then I worked as a teaching fellow at that bootcamp while I interviewed. I got a job at Etsy in January of 2020. That started in March of 2020. And I started working at Etsy on March 17th, 2020. <laughs> I was part of their first remote onboarding. Um, it, they were they were really great, and they're still great. And I got promoted. Did I tell you that I got promoted? Are you senior promoted. software engineer now? I'm software engineer two now. Software engineer two, nice. Yeah. Yes, season one, episode five. You need to listen to Navette Bailey's story. So, I think what was really um, just like awe inspiring from that episode. And then also just, I mean, again, I, I know you, Jonelle, I know you don't know me, but um, the fact that he, like you all seem to be, would you say it's fair to, to, to characterize you both as not risk averse? Uh, yeah. I mean, me definitely. I think. Yeah. Uh, what's risk? I don't know. I don't really. What like what what's the worst that can happen? It's really like. I just I, I feel like uh, our mom made us feel like things would work out. You know, like, and that makes you able to be brave and do things. So, you know, like I wasn't happy in my job as a designer, so I quit it. I didn't really have like another plan. I worked as a barista for minimum wage in California, um, and then eventually moved back to New York and decided to go to paramedic school. You know, and then turns out that doesn't pay well. Uh, but I really liked the job. So I also wanted to buy a house at some point. So I had to make a plan to have more money. And so, um, you know, I don't yet, but like someday I will. <laughs> I definitely do not have any more, like have, I have way less money now after all that and no house. So Yeah, same after sure that. Point, I have way less money. <laughs> So the so the bachelor de bachelor degree does not translate to having a house. Um, not when you go to like one of the top institutions in the country and you have to pay for it with loans. <laughs> it does not. Maybe it will. Like I don't know if it I could have for me. I'm doing. Yeah. It could have worked out. I could have stayed at working as an engineer and then, you know, I would have a house by now for sure. But I didn't. I went to medical. I went to one of the most expensive medical schools in the country and had to pay for that. <laughs> When, when does it pay off? Because that's, I mean, that's a, a pretty common, and I do have a, like, I do want to circle back to the bravery, but I think that's a common misconception that people have about oh, that doctors make a lot of money. Yeah. So when, when, yeah, when like the they do bucks... eventually. Yeah. So when, when is that? Um, it's when you're done with your training and, but the whole thing is that like in the meat, so you make money, not a lot, but you make money as a resident, it's a job and you make money as a fellow, you get paid. A, like definitely livable wage. I am not struggling at all. The, my days of needing to eat ramen are over. I just like it. And so I still eat it. Um, but uh, I have, I have student loans from medical school. 
Um, however, doctors are great investments. And so people want to give us mortgages and car loans and like all kinds of credit cards and all kinds of stuff because they know that first of all, we sign contracts. So like we're going to finish training barring some like catastrophe. And then when we finish training, we're going to make a bunch more money. So we're, you know, all these businesses that think that we're going to spend money with them, if they invest in us when we're not making that much money, they hope that we'll give them more money when we have it. And so you still can like, you know, like I still had a mortgage during residency. Like I still did buy a place and, you know, I had a car, I had car payments. Like, you know, I functioned as a regular adult that like had a salary and could buy things. Um, but I'm not like sleeping on a mattress of money. Like many people think doctors do. I don't necessarily think that will ever happen. Um, but I'll definitely make probably like, I don't know, four or five times more than I'm making now in the year and a half, just like in a year and a half. Yep. Once you have a job. Yep. Just like that. All of a sudden. So what I wanted to, to, to focus on was the fact that you all, you mentioned bravery yourself and you know, the, the risk, the, the risk friendliness or the bravery that you all had, like, where does that come from and how are you able to, how are you thinking about, in particular, you, Janelle, because I know you said, you know, Antonio was 14 months old, but how are you thinking about how you're going to instill that in, instill that in your, your children? I feel like by example, like our mom always made us feel like we could do whatever we set our minds to do. And we have done that. Yeah, because she did it. Like she, she grew did up that. in a small town in West Virginia and she wanted to get away from there to go to college. And she did. And then she, and then went she to like went what, to New York City Yale. on her own. Yeah, like it was her parents, neither of her parents had a college education and she went to Yale for a PhD. So like, that's cool. And then she was like, I'm going to live in New York City, which is not an easy city to live in. And she did that. Do do you all think, um, you know, we are almost a year from George Floyd's death, almost a year. What do you think has changed? I am in um, hospitals and the inertia of this, of the professional healthcare field is really difficult to overcome. There's, there are definitely um, efforts by my various employers over the past few years to change the culture, but like there's more or I don't know, there's different issues, different pressing issues in the obviously like our immediate world, like the pandemic or like taking care of sick people or whatever it is that you're doing as a specialty. So I think it's hard for me to see what's changing in the world because I'm so surrounded. I'm like in this bubble and I spend so much time in this bubble that it's hard to even know like what's happening in the news. I was just trying to read about what's happening in Israel and, and Palestine. And it's like hard to keep up with like things that change day to day when it's Groundhog Day over here, you know, like, and I, and I spend so many hours in the hospital, it's hard to like keep track of what's going on in the outside world. So um, things have changed here, like things have changed in the hospital. Um, we're told like not to make any mandatory meetings on Juneteenth by email. And I was like, whoa, it's not a national holiday, but like that's cool that they're recognizing it as in a day that's important to some of its employees. And 
you know, I'm at an academic institution, so I um, have a lot of focus on this, on the community that we serve and trying to improve the situation for the other pandemic that's happening, which is gun violence. And so there's, that's something that's in our face every single day. So I don't know about the rest of America or what's, what's changing in terms of like some of the other issues, but here we're focused on trying to decrease violence in this immediate surrounding community in the city. And then obviously on a more national scale and it's, we don't need reminders for motivation. We have the reminders every single day in the trauma bay, you know? Yeah. I definitely think things have changed. Um, and it just made me think of like some specific, like I mentioned, I think that the response from white people about when they hear of racism, I think is changing, has not changed obviously for all pe white people, but there are a lot of pe white people who for some reason didn't listen to us previously until 2020 about what our experiences were like that are now more interested in hearing us and are really interested in actually doing something about it, including educating each other. Um, and so that is, that I think that is still a minority of white people, but there's this sense of empowerment in institutions. And I want to say that not all institutions and not especially not large institutions, but recently in New York City, uh, my, my child attends a private school, an independent school, they call them. Um, a parent of another independent school wrote a letter that became viral complaining that their kid's independent school was too focused on race and that the focus on race was racism itself. And quoted Martin Luther King given in this letter, and you can go find it, it's on the internet. Um, but there's, I think, you know, five years ago, I feel confident in saying that the average independent school response would have been like, yeah, maybe you're right. Like, we want you to still pay our tuition and we will, we're willing to like, you know, modify our behavior to make sure that our parents are satisfied. And in 20, in 2021, it was like, bye, we don't need you to be here. We think it's important for us to talk about race. This is not a post-racial society. We want our community to feel supported and we're going to do what we can. And I was like, that's diff that feels different. That's, nice. that's definitely not. I just, I think that that's, and I don't, I feel like that's because there are more white people who recognize that this, there's a serious issue that needs to be solved and that there are systems that need to be torn down. And like, I, I find that really promising. Yeah. I've been surprised in conversations too. Like, um, inevitably talking about things that are happening around the country and racism and um and and to have people say like I feel like I want to do something but I'm not sure what to do you know or say like I know that this is a problem but how do we solve it if somebody had the you know I know that gun violence in urban communities is a problem how do we solve this problem what can I do I just feel like I'm here on the back end taking care of people that are shot like is there any way that I can make a, make a difference other than to take care of people that are shot and like, that's a cool question to ask. I don't necessarily have the answer, but like the fact that somebody's thinking about that, whereas they may not have been thinking about it in that way before, I mean, that's a step in the right direction. What do you feel is the responsibility of Black people in this conversation? To rest, to just take it easy. Like, we, to survive. Like, black people have been trying, have been fighting for hundreds of years in America. And 
it is time that we don't, we should not need to do that anymore. I think there, it's not like so simple. Like, I don't think we should just like lay back and let white people take this on. But I mean, if it was possible for black people to fight hard enough for racism to end, racism would be over. From my perspective, white people have to end racism because white people created the system and white people are in power. And so like, they're the ones that need to end racism. They're finally starting to listen. But I think that black people need to take care of themselves. Yeah, like she said, black people need to survive and black people can like, there's, there's a really interesting discussion about like a lot of companies are starting to have diversity and inclusion initiatives. And those, those roles have historically been filled by people of color. And more recently, there are now like white people who are really interested in filling these roles about diversity and inclusion. And so there's the trade-off of like, that was a job that's like high up in, you know, um, in, in like executive level jobs sometimes that usually goes to a person of color that may not be going to a person of color. But also, like, is it not time for white people to take on the job of educating other white people and doing the work to dismantle racist systems so that people of color can just exist and will not have to also constantly fight for their own existence? I think so. I think it is that time. But I think it's that. Wait, hold on. I also think that um, there is there are like opportunities for black people to be allies for uh, like, intersectional identities. Like there are a lot of LGBTQ plus people who are black or other you know, people of color that need support that are still being left behind. Um, trans, like black trans women are being killed at a, high, at a high number in America and nobody's really talking about it except for the communities that they're in. So there, there's definitely room for, for work, like even within our own community to be supportive of people who are more marginalized. Um, but for sure, like regarding race, I'm thankful that it seems like the work is, is, is it's possible for other people who are not the ones that are experiencing oppression to take up the job of education. So I think it's like anything else. If you look at like the way that things have changed in the past, right? Like how did women get to vote? It wasn't because a bunch of women got, were able to like change the constitution, right? It's because men decided that women should be able to vote. So unless the people that are in the, in power oppressing the minority decide that it's time to make a change, the minority can't fight hard enough. It's not going to change. So black people have been fighting. It's exhausting. And it's exhausting on an individual level. And then with social media and the way the news is in 2021, it's exhausting on a systemic level. And like, there's no escaping any of it, right? You don't get a break. And so black people should be taking care of their own physical, emotional, mental health and not be held responsible for teaching white people what to do or how to do it or how, what the next thing is that they need to do to make a change just surviving. So one thing that was, I don't know that we talked about it too much, but what has dating been like? (laughs) What? (laughs) No, I'm asking, I'm asking various, no, 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 I'm asking. talk about this, but I have a lot to say about this. All right, I'll go first because I don't have a lot to say. So I'll go for it, mine's short. So when you don't have time, dating is not a priority, right? When you're like, in medical school or residency, especially early on, you're not really in charge of your schedule. Um, your time really belongs to your job. And so dating's not a priority. Um, eventually you get some of your time back. And then as like a woman in my mid thirties, I was like, I should go on a date. So I went on Bumble and I went on a date and now we have one and a half kids. Wait, this was a Bumble. This was like one Bumble. Was one this bumble, the first bumble? One bumble date. It was my first bumble date. 
Whoa, that's yeah. like you should do an ad. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I know you're not going to do that, but that's like <laughs> that's wow. But I hadn't been on a date in six months. My I was at work. I was like, wow, I haven't been on a date in six months. Like I randomly just thought of that, and I was like, that makes me like a huge loser. I should go on a date. Yeah, so I went on Bumble, and I was like, I'm going to go on a date. I don't know if that's that's not necessarily his story. I don't know how many dates he was on on Bumble, but I only went on one Bumble date. That's irrelevant. We're talking about your story. Yeah. So wait. So what, wow. what profession is he in? Um, he is was he played football and he's retired. I didn't even really have to ask like whether or not he was an athlete. Yeah. So the best thing about him being an athlete is that he understands the high level commitment that my job requires because that's what his job required. That is excellent. Yeah. Man, see, um, you made it seem way easier. Than- no, I would like to go now because yeah, no, yeah, I definitely. On- I told you it would be think, short. It's I really easy. Like, no, <laughs> straightforward. No, I, I don't even think that I can count the number of dates that I've been on. From I mean, I'm on every app. Like that, I'm not on every app, but I'm on like all the major apps. I get tired of them. My New Year's resolution for 2021 was to spend 15 minutes swiping every day. Um, it's like it's going fine, uh, and that was just to like I'm I'm not. I mean, I obviously haven't been on a date for a really long time because there's a pandemic, but like, I'm not like, I'm ready. I'm ready to be out there, like going on dates five nights a week. Like this was just like, I should start meeting people who are single and maybe talking to them. And I don't even know how to begin to explain what a disaster it is. Like being single in Brooklyn with a PhD and like, you know, I think I'm cute. I'm cute and I have a PhD. And when I meet, especially men on dating apps, they're like, I, I, I kind of, I'm not sure what approach to take. And I've been iterating on it. Like, should I just be upfront? Like, I know what I want. I'm very educated. I have most of the things, like I have everything that I want in my life, except I would be nice to have a partner. If you can contribute anything, like hit me up. But if you can't contribute anything and you're just going to no. take, like, don't bother. Um, yes. And that's, and that, that's like my... <laughs> that, <laughs> you write that. that in your dating profile. It's basically so that they can just that. read it before you even match. I, it does. It says that I don't match as much as I used to when it used to say less things. Okay. Same pictures. So like that says something. Um, and, but I also, I have now screening questions cause I'm just like, we're just going to get to the point. Cause I also feel like my, like my time is time. I'm not interested in this long, like, how's your day? Like, what's your favorite color? Like, I don't care. I don't want to know about that. That like, you don't even get to know those things about me until you tell me, do you objectify women? Do you think that you're in possession of your partner's body? Do you like, are you, are you secure enough that you can date someone that's way better than you? Cause I am for sure way better than you. Like, are you going to be comfortable with that? Do you know that I'm better than you and you're comfortable dating someone that's better than you and you're never going to be good enough for me? Cause like, that's what I'm looking for so far. No, I've not met that person. This was great. Before we end, I have three questions to ask you both. Here we go. First question is what is one song that you could listen to on repeat for the rest of your days? Foo Fighters, Everlong. Okay, Coldplay, Yellow. Second question. Uh, your favorite meal to be made for you? Not by you, but for you. I mean, all meals should be made for me. I don't understand the question. Reservations? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, uh, I have a better answer. Chili. Chili? Mm-hmm. I like my own chili. And no one ever makes it as good as I do. Can I just stick with reservations? I want to go. I want to. I want a professional chef to make 
whatever I'm in the mood for that day. So you're going to go with reservations? Yeah. There you go, thinking outside the box. Wonderful. And then last question, what is one piece of advice that you could provide to someone that you received that was impactful in your own life? Hmm. I think just, you can do it. Just try. Um, I would say, talk to somebody that's doing the thing that you think you might want to do. Simple yet so profound. Dr. Jonelle Bailey, Dr. Navette Bailey. Thank you, ladies. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to today's Technically 200 episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com.